Hello and welcome to the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to get the latest COVID-19 pandemic information out to first responders as efficiently, effectively, and clearly as possible. Today is March 12, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, once again, we sit down with Dr. Steve McGraw, the Oakland County Med Control EMS Medical Director, and Dr. Russell Faust, the Oakland County Health Division Medical Director. More and more states are planning to progress towards loosening up on stay-at-home orders and other related restrictions. As this happens, we need to consider the potential effects on our EMS and hospital systems. During this episode, we focus on the potential impact on EMS and hospitals over the next six months as states continue to open up more and more. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. Follow us on Instagram at EMS on Air and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. Enjoy the podcast. Dr. McGraw, can you please describe the impact on EMS and hospitals over the last week during this crazy COVID-19 pandemic? Well, thanks a lot, Jeff. You know, we're in kind of a uh, good place right now. We are still seeing COVID-19 patients, but significantly lower rate than even last week. What is a little bit challenging is to try to get the message out to our communities that while we are still receiving some of those patients, we can still at the same time take care of their other alternative emergencies, chest pain, strokes, sick baby, injuries, trauma, So we're trying to learn as an operational group how to manage both those realities at the same time. And that message of that operational success has to get out to the community. We have to do what we say we're doing, but then actually make sure they know that we can do it. A good example is if you come in with a broken leg, we have to make sure that you're not going to be placed in an area where someone that we're treating for COVID pneumonia could infect you. And vice versa, we need to be able to give them good care and not let their precipitous oxygenation get missed. We're doing a lot of simple things. We're screening all the hospital associates, doctors, nurses, techs, everybody, for temperature and for symptoms. We're all wearing our masks and continuing to make sure that we protect everyone from us while we're also protecting ourselves from everybody. And the lesson we learned in some of this is that just like our EMS providers have learned, you don't have to have classic COVID symptoms. You can be hit by a car in a parking lot and on the way to the hospital, answer all the questions correctly. But when we do your chest x-ray, we see bilateral ground glass appearing pneumonias. And then it turned out that, you know, last week you uh, admitted that you had a cough, sniffle and, uh, and mild body aches and maybe even a little great fever. You never felt short of breath, but we're kind of stumbling over those people. Certainly, we swab people that we're having to admit to the hospital, even without symptoms, just to make sure we don't put them in a part of the hospital that doesn't have COVID patients and it inadvertently turns out they do. The way that we operationalize that has to be done with care and deliberation. The world of EMS, as you guys well know, your volumes have decreased, but a lot of that is because people aren't going to work and people aren't driving and they're staying home and they're not having as many injuries. And because they know they're likely going to be encouraged to be transported, I think some people are not calling 911 with symptoms that previously would have yielded that call because they don't want to go to the hospital. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to have a situation where they're potentially exposed to someone who's got a contagious illness at the same time that they can't typically have visitors. 
So one of the things we're going to be doing in conjunction with the governor's executive order is allowing visitors, one visitor per patient on a somewhat limited basis. But I'm hoping that comes out in her next iteration of the stay-at-home orders. As we start to loosen our constraints on people's behavior, certainly one I'm looking most forward to is being able to have visitors back in the hospital again. Now, they can't go to the cafeteria and they can't wander around. They're going to have to stay in the patient's room. But I'm hoping very soon that we'll have the opportunity to allow people to stay and advocate for their loved one. I think that would go a long way towards making people feel more comfortable about coming to the hospital and calling 911. Fantastic. We're also here today with Dr. Faust. And as we all know from previous experience with Dr. Faust, he's a guy who's got access to a lot of good numbers. Dr. Faust, can you please list and describe the applicable COVID infection statistics? Thanks, Jeff. And thanks, Dr. McGraw. I do want to uh, also advocate for allowing limited visitation to folks in the hospital. Having a bedside advocate makes a huge difference in success and uh, health of everybody. We've been doing that with our long-term care executive orders to get family members in to continue life-sustaining activities for our elderly who are stuck in various long-term care facilities. So let me just quickly review some of the numbers as of yesterday nationally. And I, I do want to point out that in my estimation, the best source of data is the Johns Hopkins University website, and it is coronavirus.jhu. Edu. They've got a, a global map. They've got a U.S. map. They list data by confirmed numbers, by deaths, by fatality rate. It's really an outstanding site and a resource for those who are interested. So as of Sunday, we had in the U.S. 1.3, more than 1.3 million confirmed cases and 78,000 deaths in the U.S. Note that that number is about the population. That is 1.3 million, about the population in Oakland County here. Michigan cases, there were about 48,000 cases, 4,500 deaths. And importantly, as of Friday, 22,686 recovered. And the definition of recovered is now folks that are confirmed and who are alive at 30 days. And the assumption is that by 30 days they've recovered. Dr. McGraw will tell you that's not always the case, but that's the current definition. And that gives me some optimism is to see that number of recovered climbing. Here in Oakland County, we have 7,800 confirmed cases, 851 deaths, and 5,204 recovered as of yesterday. That's a growing and optimistic number. I think that's a good number to have. Dr. Faust, how yes, about the case fatality rate? What does it mean when we say in Michigan we have a 10% case fatality rate? That is the number of fatalities over the number of confirmed cases. Early during our testing, we just didn't have any tests. Actual testing was being rationed for those who were severely ill, those who were being hospitalized. Obviously, those being hospitalized were more severely ill. For most folks that were presenting with classic COVID-19 symptoms, if they were ambulatory, still able to oxygenate on Romare, in general, they were sent home without being tested. So you can see right there, that's a selection bias for those we're testing. That is, we're slanting our results to those that are severely ill, being hospitalized. And as a result, the case fatality rate will be apparently very high. And again, early on, it was very high. So as we've been able to have better access to testing, as we've broadened our testing through the community, been testing those who are ambulatory, not only 
at our, say, drive-up centers, not only at the hospitals that have more access to ready testing, but also we've been going out into long-term care facilities, and the majority of those folks are asymptomatic, and we've been testing all their staff and all their residents. That case fatality rate has been dropping. And I think if you look across the U.S., that case fatality rate largely reflects access to tests, access to testing kits, because for those that don't have ready access, they were just testing those that were severely ill. I think that jacks up your apparent case fatality rate. Russ, you make a great point about bias of selection. Early on, the first several weeks of the outbreak in, in March and even up until April, it was so difficult to get somebody tested. We had a couple of hundred kits twice a week delivered to the State Bureau of Labs for all of Michigan. I mean, we really only could test people and get a patient under investigation number to allow us to test them if they were severely ill and requiring hospitalization. And as you correctly described, we had many people that walked into our emergency departments all over the county. In Southern Oakland County, I can tell you it was between sometimes 20, 30, 50 a day that were not at all requiring hospitalization. But I was virtually, my partners and I were certain what we were dealing with. They all tested negative for the flu because we had that in-house and they all got discharged with the instructions that you have coronavirus and here's how to self-isolate. Well, none of those people counted in the denominator. And so you had, if you take the number of deaths that were occurring then in a much smaller denominator, it makes that rate seem abnormally high. Another way of looking at it is if you wanted to pick the average height of an American male, and instead of selecting all the American males, you could put up against a door frame and measure their height, but instead selected the NBA players in your town. When you do that average, you're going to have a selection bias a very skewed deviation from what is actually the average male height in America. Well, this was sort of like that in that we intentionally, due to you know having no alternative, only tested those that were so grievously ill and all the walking well that still were sick and still had the disease were not counted in the denominator. We inadvertently overestimated to an enormous amount the actual case fatality rate. As we move forward and understanding the fact that we simply weren't testing everyone, so you can't really get an understanding as a litmus to how is everyone doing if you're only testing our most sick. But as we move forward and we look at these numbers and they become more of realistic numbers, is there any way that we can identify if Michigan's case fatality rate is any higher or lower than the rest of the U.S.? Statistically, I would suggest it's probably pretty similar to the case fatality rate around the country. We just won't know until we have a bigger selected pool of people and not just focusing on those and only testing those that were of the most grievously ill nature. I think one of the things we're going to learn from serologic antibody testing as it becomes more available is that many more people probably encountered the disease may have gotten sick or may at least have had some mild symptoms they never really treated or, or sought care for but still nonetheless made antibodies to. Serologic tests are specifically when they draw a tube of blood. I have shared, and I know Dr. Faust has shared on a previous podcast, I have a lot of difficulty with the lateral flow, fingertip of drop of blood placed on a card and then adding some reagent to it. I think all of those have potential problems and almost none have FDA approval. Yet I think they became sort of easy to order over the internet. They were, the market was flooded with them but I'm not certain I would rely on the results. Serologic testing is when they spin a tube of your blood down and analyze it for the presence of immunoglobulins, IgG and IgM, and then they give you a numerical value for the result, giving you a sort of a relative concentration of those antibodies, not just that they're present, 
like you would see on a little line showing up on a lateral flow cassette, but rather the numeric quantitative analysis of the immunoglobulins in your blood. Prevalence is going to be really hard to determine without that. Prevalence is the rate of the percentage of a population that has or had the exposure to the disease. I think Dr. Faust and I, I don't want to speak for you, Dr. Faust, but I, I think we would discourage people from using unvalidated tests and then unfortunately relying or thinking one thing when you know the opposite might be true. You might not have any antibody or thinking you don't have any and you have some. The qualitative test just refers to the fact that it's ordinal. The little line shows up in the test or it doesn't. And that lateral flow probably reminds a lot of people of home pregnancy tests for the same reason. I would argue that the better analysis is done with a serologic testing that gives you a numerical value. Not that they're present, but to what extent they're present. So I don't want to waste a lot of time on this. I could rant about those quick finger poke blood tests for antibodies for an hour. I could just rant about those forever. I can't tell you the number of fire and rescue squads, captains that have called me to tell me that they've purchased $10,000 worth of those things so that they can clear their team members to return to work. I've got mayors and senators and congressmen calling me for the same reason, and none of them are reliable. There are more than 100 of them being sold right now. At least they stopped offering them to me, but for a month there, I was receiving three or four offers a week, all of them claiming to be FDA approved, none of which were FDA approved, all of them claiming to be able to diagnose COVID-19, none of which are able to diagnose COVID-19. That's not a diagnostic test. All it ostensibly was there to tell you was whether you had antibodies or not. And in fact, I've got people that are confirmed from multiple PCR tests to have been infected with COVID-19. And I have several, several of those tests here in my cabinet and none of them work. So um, I have nothing good to say about them. And the issue is they're coming out of China and Korea. And there are people, little companies, fly-by-night companies that are selling them to make money right now. And they're making their money. And by the time FDA gets around to prosecuting them, they'll be gone. So I'm done. That's about as close as to the opposite of an endorsement that I've ever heard in my life. Over the next six months, it really feels like normal or the new normal and opening up states is going to be a thing. So we need to start talking about reasonable expectations of what does opening up the state look like for EMS providers? What can they really expect over the next six months, not only as a citizen, but as a healthcare provider in the field? Before you guys address that, let me just say that yesterday, there were a couple of publications in the lay press reporting on countries who thought they were on the far side of the curve, who have opened things up and have now begun to, to re-spike. Yeah, South um, Korea is a great example of that. That was very discouraging to read that. Well, that was going to be my answer, actually. I just think that from the perspective of EMS, your protocols and what we've done most recently is really not going to change. It's really going to depend on what we see. We're all going to have to think of ourselves as participants in a big experiment. I think different states are going to do it differently, and I'm glad that I suspect Michigan is going to really emphasize the things that we've kind of become accustomed to. Don't go to a public place without a mask. Not just protect yourself, it's actually to protect those that you may come in contact from you. But if everyone does it, then we mutually protect one another. EMS providers are going to still need to treat patients without symptoms as if they could potentially have it. So as to do that, 
still manage their PPE the same way. And environments where it seems to be more endemic, take special care to make certain that they're putting a mask on the patient and themselves. They're going to have to do all the normal things they've gotten accustomed to with decontamination, changing their gloves, not touching their face, washing their hands diligently. When you dump your equipment at the hospital, please take the moment to then diligently wash your hands. Make sure that you've not only decontaminated yourself, but you've put things in the bio bag in the ER so that you don't inadvertently cause anyone else to become infected. We're gonna to have to live like this, not, not just for a few more weeks. This is our new reality until we have herd immunity. Now, as we move forward, we talk about the fact that as opening things up, doesn't mean that we should be more relaxed. What I'm gathering as I kind of work through this as a provider too is the more they open things up, I think the more often I'm wearing a mask, not less often, because it feels almost natural for somebody to think, hey, they're loosening things up. I guess that means things are getting better and I don't need to wear a mask. Where in reality, we have a better grasp as to what's going on and we're certain that wearing a mask works. It feels like wearing a mask and the social distancing has taken a really good effect. And if we don't respect those boundaries and respect the use of that mask pretty much everywhere we go, it's not going to be better by not wearing the mask. I feel like we're going to have these huge flare-ups again and again and again and again if we just don't do it. Yeah, you know, Jeff, we know that our equipment works. We know that because we've seen fewer of us get sick over time and even more than the proportion of the case rate going down. The reminder I want to give to people is that it only takes one patient and you literally are putting your health and safety at great risk. You know, Dr. Faust, I think it's important too to think from sort of a, a public health standpoint, why that's so important. And then what we've seen in other communities around the world that have sort of done this quote, opening up or trying to live back to normal. You want to comment a little bit about what we're seeing from a public health standpoint in those places? Only what I've been able to read recently, just in the last couple of days, but South Korea had their first case the same day we had our first case in the U.S., and they did so many things better than we did. They prepared. They had seen it coming, as we did. But unlike the United States, they had actually prepared. They had accumulated PPE masks. They had prepared to test their citizens. They did so many things correct that we would have hoped to model. And hopefully we can model as we move forward. But thinking that they were now on the far side of the curve, they began to open up. And they've begun to see cases spike again. And having vigilant contact investigation, none of the new cases have had any exposure to a known case. That is, every new case that's developing in, in these places is from someone who's asymptomatic, who has not been confirmed, not been documented. And I think that's what we can expect moving forward here. We know that there's an enormous number of people now in the community that are asymptomatic. We're seeing people in our drive-up testing. We're seeing people in the long-term care facilities that we're testing with a very high number of asymptomatics. I mean, we're seeing 10% in our long-term care are asymptomatic. Uh, I think moving forward, as Jeff and Dr. McGraw point out, I think this needs to be our new normal. If you're out in public, everybody needs to be wearing a mask. We need to behave as though everyone is a potential exposure source. And I don't see an end to this anytime soon. The problem with understanding the virus is that we won't have the data collected for at least another year. We need to know what the case prevalence rate is in, in the community. 
and we're not going to know that without the antibody test, a good quantitative serology test available nationwide, along with the PCR test to know about viral shedding. And that combination will give us some sense. And we need to know whether those folks who actually have antibodies get reinfected. There's some suggestion that they can. So all of these things are going to make a big difference moving forward. And the only way to deal with that is to know it's in the community. You can't recognize somebody that has it. Many, many asymptomatics. Wear a mask, wash your hands, don't touch your face. Social distancing is the new normal. When you think about it too, it doesn't really size up to something that sounds too great. But if we're careful, we can kind of get some of our productivity going again. We can get to the point where we can be less confined to our homes. If we play our cards right and we listen to the infectious disease professionals, we can pull this off. And I think actually the majority of our population will. We just have to really focus on that and have others that aren't willing to do so to sort of just do it, to go along and get along. And then we'll be in a good spot. You know, few people going rogue in the math probably don't matter, but a lot of people ignoring these warnings and these very effective prevention measures can hurt a lot of people themselves, notwithstanding that, but they can hurt a lot of other people that may be more vulnerable to the outcomes of this disease than they themselves are. You guys are touching on the fact of how it's going to affect us socially as EMS providers, you know, not even going on calls, just how it's going to affect us when we go home and interact with the community as citizens. And it's difficult to swallow knowing I'm going to be wearing a mask for a long time in public. It just, everybody agrees it just sucks, but it is what it is. Another thing that sucks is being limited on the treatments that I have available for my patients. And recently we received an email from a listener that said, just finished listening up to the most recent podcast where Dr. McGraw touches on the return to normal. Uh, I understand that we will be wearing masks until herd immunity is achieved or a vaccine created, but what about treatments for our patients with respiratory symptoms? Is there a point where occurrences of the virus are low enough to where we can again initiate nebulized treatments or place advanced airways? Or is the current strategy to avoid those interventions until either herd immunity is achieved or an effective vaccine is created? Well, it's going to be a while yet before I can endorse giving nebulized treatments due to the amount of droplets they produce. But I do encourage people to help patients use their own meter dose inhalers, and we use those in the emergency department. When we do use an albuterol nebulized treatment in our department, it's in a negative pressure room. The respiratory therapist is wearing an N95 mask, and we also either have knowledge that the patient has already tested negative for COVID with a negative nasal swab that we get back quickly, or... We're treating them as if their respiratory droplets are severely infectious, but we've weighed the risks and benefits, and there's really no way to avoid trying to do something other than mechanical ventilation. So you don't have those testing capabilities or the predictive capabilities that we enjoy with the negative pressure room in the emergency room. So I just don't see that changing soon. To the point of whether or not we can use advanced airways, as we've said, there are times a blind airway, a supraglottic airway, is agreeable. I just want to do it only in those cases where we think the patient is salvageable, would benefit from the airway, and that salvageability and effectiveness outweigh the considerable risk that the medic is experiencing by placing one. I think it's certainly only permissible if it's a blind supraglottic airway. I still will not be in a position to endorse direct laryngoscopy anytime soon in the field. There's just too much of a risk of looking down that airway with your face close to the patient's mouth that I, I think outweighs any potential benefit. 
What about the use of a item like a King Vision where I don't have to have my head staring down the gullet of the patient? I can essentially be three feet away with my head, sticking my arm straight out and intubating that patient with a uh, video-based laryngoscope. Is that on the radar for maybe? That's a good question, Jeff. And I just come down on the side of safety on that. I think opening the patient's airway in such a fashion, uh, especially if they're sick enough to be in respiratory failure, their viral load, and they have COVID, their viral load is so high that even though you may be at arm's length away, you don't have the kind of space helmet I can wear in the emergency department. And you know, I'm using a video laryngoscopy, a glidoscope, where I can have my face looking, you know, 180 degrees almost away from the patient. I can be at least 100 degrees turning to the left or right away from the patient's airway, looking at the video screen while my hands are wrapped around my body to the right, actually manipulating the tube. I just don't think anything less than that is safe for intubation. I really don't. So in summary, what I'm hearing to the the overall theme of this question being, is my treatment's going to change for my patients in the immediate future? It sounds like nothing is changing regarding our treatments. Recently, we did change some of our protocols for the emergency protocols, and none of them have to do with where the patient is transported or the types of treatments we do during transport. However, I would be remiss if I didn't remind everybody listening that you have consistently advocated for the use of high-volume O2 devices outside of the house, in the open air, giving them a high volume of oxygen, and then before they get in the back of that ambulance, getting back to something like from a non-rebreather to a nasal cannula with the mask over that, and doing what we can with what we can. But again, we are avoiding nebulized treatments and ET intubation at this time. That's a good summary. Does anybody have anything else before we go into conclusion? Things will steadily and progressively loosen up. As you point out, Jeff, we need to be vigilant in continuing to do our best to protect ourselves and others around us. As Dr. McGraw points out, I think the way to look at wearing a mask in public is it demonstrates respect and care for those around us because it's really for their protection, not for yours. And so let's all demonstrate our respect and care for those around us and wear a mask in public. Well said. Thank you to Dr. McGraw and Dr. Faust for your time today. As always, you've taught us a lot and we really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone out there for listening to the podcast and continue to email your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at EMS on air and subscribe, leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you use. And if you can't find us on your podcast platform, get rid of that platform. It's not any good get a new one that you can find us on. Thank you for listening to the EMS On Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.